So, you guys, as you're making your way back to your seats, um, we are in the middle of a, a sermon series um, that I'm actually calling uh, The Prayers of David. And so, in some respects, we're looking at some psalms because, you know, obviously if you read particular psalms, um, they're really written from David um, to God. And so they're songs, they're poems, but frequently they're also written um, as prayers as well. And so we actually just spent the last three weeks unpacking Psalm 139. And so in the midst of Psalm 139, uh, we don't know the background of Psalm 139, just like we don't know the background of the psalm we're going to look at today. But it's pretty clear that in Psalm 139, David was experiencing anxiety, depression, probably fear. And in it, he takes comfort as he reminds himself uh, that God knows him and still loves him. And not only that, he takes comfort in remembering that God loves him because he made him, that he was a piece of art that God had made. And then finally, he reminds himself that God loves him and that he is with him through thick and through thin. It's a really powerful psalm, Psalm 139. I encourage you to take a look at it. This morning, we're going to jump back into this series. We're going to be looking at a different prayer of David. Uh, But before we do that, let me take a moment and let's just pray. Father, I thank you so much um, for the opportunity that we have to gather and to worship um, and to look at your word and to see you um, in the faces and in the relationships of the people in this room. Uh, Father, we thank you um, that your spirit is here among us, and I pray, Father, that your spirit wouldn't allow any of us to leave today without having had an encounter with you, the living God. Father, I pray that you would love us enough uh, to reveal to us um, the bad news. Uh, Father, but I pray also um, that you would reveal to us um, the good news, that we have salvation and mercy and grace and adoption through your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So there's a man named Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a 20th century newspaper man. He was British. And uh, though his original vocation was, again, uh, you know, writing for papers and, and working in the newspaper industry, he was a Christian in a time where in Europe, Christianity was on the decline. And he actually became quite the apologist or defender of Christianity in the midst of sort of a culture that was falling apart around him. And uh, so he spoke widely, wrote widely, talked about Christianity all the time, was very popular, became a speaker in all these different levels in different countries, and was very sort of widely held up as this Christian influential thinker, really a lot of power, a lot of authority, a lot of influence. Well, he had been married for about 50 years, and his wife passed away, and after his wife passed away, he wrote a book, and in the midst of that book, he talked about all sorts of the challenges of you know, living his life and um, sort of what God had called him to. But one of the things that he wrote in this book, which I found really moving and impactful, was he told a story of after he and his wife had been married for some time, and he was in India on an assignment for a couple of weeks. And uh, in it, in the the book, he writes and he says, um, one of the things that I'd always struggled with as a man was this sort of itch, this desire to be unfaithful to my wife. And he said, I couldn't really understand Uh, where it was coming from or why it was, but I knew it was there. And he said, I just always sort of kept it at arm's length. He said, when I was in India, he said, the itch became stronger because I had really a lot of anonymity in this uh, country that was half the world away. And uh, he says in the book, he writes and, and talks about how one morning he had gone down to this river in the village where he was staying to bathe, because in India back in, you know, the 1930s, whatever, that's what you did. And so he makes his way down to this river, And you can sort of imagine the scene where it's one of those 
uh, mornings where it's cool, but the water's warm. There's mist sort of coming off of the water. And he said he walked down into the river and he began to bathe and he looked upstream and there was a woman with her back to him in the water bathing. And he said at that minute, that temptation, that desire, that itch to be unfaithful just became uh, just relentless. And he said, you know, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. You know, I'm this, you know, well-known Christian speaker. I, there's no way I can do that. But then the temptation began to get the better of him. And he said, you know, this is my chance. Like I could do this here and nobody would ever know. I could sort of scratch that itch. And so he said, I began to make my way upstream towards this woman with her back towards me, to me bathing. And he said, I, you know, made it about halfway towards her and I stopped and I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is insane. I can't do this. This is, this is wrong. It's evil. It's bad. It's wicked. And he said, but again, the temptation got the better of him and he thought, this is my chance. And so he made his way towards her. And he says, as he made his way towards her, he got within several feet of her and he reached out his hand to touch her on the shoulder. And he said, when he reached out his hand to touch her on the shoulder, she turned around and he said, he stepped back in shock because this woman was a leper. And instead of having, you know, ears like you and I have, she just had folds of skin. And instead of having a nose like you and I have, she just had two holes in the front of her face where her nose should have been. And where her hands were, she had uh, these fingerless appendages. But he said, what shocked me wasn't the ugliness of her physically. He said, what shocked me was the ugliness of me spiritually. Does that make sense? He said, in this one fell swoop, I came face to face with the depth and the depravity, depravity and the wickedness of my own sin, and it's almost as if I hadn't really seen it until then, and it shocked me, right? And I would argue that when we see our sin, it should shock us as well. In Psalm 32, which is the psalm we're going to be looking at today, we have a prayer of David in which we usually focus on confession and repentance, and those are definitely uh, parts of this psalm, and as is forgiveness, and you'll see it as I read it today. But what we often overlook in the midst of this psalm, this prayer of David, is his precise realization of his sinfulness. He sees it very, very clearly. We're going to jump into that in just a moment. But before we do, read along with me, if you will, Psalm chapter 32. It'll be up on the screen if you want to read it up there. If you want to have your, open your Bibles, that's fine too. He says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. It's a great prayer of David, a great psalm. Now, I'm going to 
actually be unpacking this psalm a little bit more in a couple weeks. And so today, I'm going to just look at a narrow slice of this psalm before going on to the broader psalm in a couple weeks. And so the question is, what should we take away from Psalm 32 this morning? And what I want you to take away from Psalm 32 this morning is the clarity with which David perceives his sin. Let me say that one more time. The clarity with which David perceives his brokenness, his sin, his depravity. Like in this uh, Psalm 32, in these short verses, David uses three different words to describe his, what we would just call sinfulness or his depravity. And I'm going to actually read them in the Hebrew, uh, transliterated, of course, and then we're going to unpack each of them. The first is pasha, the second is chata, and the third is avon. So pasha, chata, avon. If you want to memorize those, that'd probably be really cool. Anyway, as far as I can tell, each of these words highlights a little bit of a different aspect of sin and sinfulness. Let's look at the first one, pasha. So if you look into the Hebrew in this, uh, it's translated transgression in this passage. And so blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. But that word transgression, we look at it and we understand trans and we understand gression and we can kind of piece together some words. But essentially what it means is rebellion. In other words, what David is saying is, blessed is the one whose rebellion is forgiven, right? I mean, just think about that for a second. Think about the depth of what he's saying there. He's saying, I've rebelled against you, God. And so this rebellion or this transgression, this pasha, it's not like a group of rebels turning against their sort of distant government. This is a betrayal between friends. Now, I'm not sure if um, the movie Braveheart is still cool or not, like I may, it, I think it came out maybe 24 years ago. So if you haven't seen it, it probably comes on one of those random TV stations every now and then. But in it, there's a, a story of this man named William Wallace, who of course, um, you know, rallies together uh, the the Scot Scottish people in order to fight against the English who are trying to take over Scotland. And one of the primary characters in there in the movie is this man named Robert the Bruce, who is a, a nobleman essentially, a, a petty king. And in it, initially, Robert the Bruce is really attracted to William Wallace, and so he teams up with him in order to try to overthrow the king. But then there's this scene in the middle of the movie where Robert the Bruce betrays or turns his back on his friend, William Wallace, and you feel it heavily in the movie. It's that type of rebellion, that type of betrayal that's being talked about here in Psalm 32. We also see the same form of rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis chapter 3 is this story where Adam and Eve sin against God. Up until this point in time, they've walked with God. They've known God. They've been friends and the friends of God. And here's what happens in the story is they're in the Garden of Eden, and then the serpent or Satan comes along and tempts them. Listen to this temptation. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He tries to get her to doubt God's goodness, to think that somehow God's holding out on her. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will surely die. She adds a little bit to what God said. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. He basically contradicts exactly what God has said. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you can't trust God. He's holding out on you. You need to take what you want and decide for yourself what is good and right and true. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It's a story of rebellion, right? Again, not against some foreign government, but it's a betrayal between friends. Adam and Eve had walked with God, right? He had known them and been with them intimately. And at this point in the story, they look at God and they say, we're turning our backs upon you and we're going to decide for ourselves what is good and right and true. And whether we believe it or not, we in this room, like Adam and Eve, have all rebelled and continue to rebel against God. Ingrained within our sinful natures is a desire to determine for ourselves what is right and good. And our refusal to submit to God ultimately leads to the chaos of our lives, the chaos of our relationships, and ultimately this rebellion leads to death, right? You've seen it, right? You've seen how rebelling against God leads to chaos in your own life personally. You've seen how rebelling against God leads to chaos in your relationships. You've experienced all of this. Maybe you've experienced the chaos that a parent has brought into your life by rebelling against God, but you've all experienced this weight, this particular weight of rebellion, of sin. So pasha, rebellion. The second term that David uses to talk about sin is this term chata. And in it, uh, it's the one that's just bluntly uh, and sort of um, baldly used uh, as sin. And so he says this, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And so in this case, this Hebrew word chata means to miss the mark, to miss the path, and to become lost is essentially what this means. And so what he's saying is he's saying sometimes our sin is willful rebellion against a good God who loves us, but often our sin is less insurgency and less insubordination and is instead an ontological brokenness within us and not measuring up, which leads us to miss the mark and to go astray. And then this lostness costs God and it costs those who we are in relationship with. Does that make sense? Um, I've got lots and lots of personal stories that I could give you about this very thing, but I'll move to one that's a little less personal. Um, I have an older sister named Christy, a.k.a. CP. Uh, Christy was, uh, man, she was, uh, she was fun. She was a lot of fun. She had no filter, and so whatever was in her mind just came out of her mouth. And so dinner time was always very enjoyable, lots of laughing in the family, but also a little bit of drama. Um, she lived life a little bit like the way that she um, sort of interacted in our family. Uh, of course, three years older than me, she got her driver's license before me, and the very first car she got was this really cool, like, early 80s Volvo. I think I've got a picture of it up here. It's a really cool old Volvo. And um, she probably had that car for, like, I don't know, two or three months before we got a phone call. And uh, Christy had borrowed somebody's phone. She's like, Mom and Dad, can you come pick me up? I wrecked the Volvo, right? And so we're like, well, you know, that's just what happens when you're a beginner driver. You know, you have some wrecks every now and then. Well, we, she replaced that car with a Toyota Corolla, which was like a 1979 Toyota Corolla, which I drove a little bit myself. I don't have pictures of that one. And, uh, you know, she drove that car for probably three or four months, and then I got another phone call. Hey, Mom, Dad, um, I wrecked the car. Can you come pick it up again? You know, come pick me up. I'm okay, but can you come pick me up? Totaled a second car. Then, um, about a year and a half later, she had a uh, Nissan 240SX, which I also don't have a picture of. And it, she um, had been driving from uh, between Greenville and Anderson, South Carolina. And I think she was late trying to get there. And uh, my parents said, one night we were sitting in the living room. We got a phone call from Christy. And uh, my mom answered the phone, and Christy goes, have you guys been praying for me? 
And uh, my mom said, well, of course, always. And Christy said, good, and hung up. <laughs> she had wrecked a third car, and uh, the Nissan 240SX. The point being is, um, were those wrecks intentional? No, they weren't intentional, but they were the byproduct of her missing the mark, missing the path. And in missing the mark and missing the path, that, that cost her in terms of insurance. It cost my parents in terms of worthy, you know, sort of worry. It cost my parents in terms of money. It cost in all these various ways. And our sin, our chata, to miss the mark and miss the path, to become lost, cost God and cost other people as well. Look at Luke chapter 15. Jesus has, uh, you know, been loving on all these people. He's been preaching the gospel. And the people that are actually turning to him are the, the sinners. And uh, the f- religious people don't like it. They, they're getting irritated by that. And listen to the story that Jesus tells them. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. In other words, what, God, what Jesus is doing there is he's saying, these sinners that are coming to me, they've missed the mark, right? They've missed the path. They've gotten lost. And guess what? It has cost you, right? It cost the older brother in the parable of the younger and older brother. And of course, what Jesus is saying is, it's costing me as well, right? This idea of chata, to miss the mark, to become lost, to cost other people. You know, I've talked with countless men. That's, I spend most of my time, uh, you know, meeting with men, um, And one of the conversations that I have over and over and over again is where these men will talk to me about ways in which they've been wounded or hurt by their fathers. In fact, uh, John Eldridge, who's a Christian uh, counselor, says every man bears a wound from his father, right? And, And what's interesting is as these men talk to me about the ways in which they've been wounded or hurt by their fathers, they always say the same thing like, I mean, not always, but they frequently say the same thing. They say, you know, my dad was a pretty good guy. He worked hard to provide for our family, you know, he, you know, was there for me in these various ways, but then they go on to talk about, but these are the ways in which I was wounded and hurt and harmed by my father, right? He didn't really mean to do it most of the time, but it still cost these men. Personally, I've tried very hard as a husband and as a father. I've tried really, really hard as a husband and a father, but I have undeniably and indisputably missed the mark with Krista, right, as her husband, undeniably, I've missed the mark with my own children over and over and over again. And I'm sure if we were to put a mic in their face and ask them what those ways were, they could probably tell you. It's hurt them. It's cost them, right? And, and honestly, they won't even know the ways in which it's cost them until they're older. And in the same way, David says, God, I've sinned against you. I've wandered away. I've missed the mark. I've missed the path. I've gotten lost. And I know that it's cost you, right? Pasha, rebellion. Chata, to become lost and miss the mark. And then the last word he uses is the word avon. Now, this word avon is translated iniquity, right? So verse 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
And in this case, it means guilt, but maybe the most nuanced reading of this is it, it means perversion, right? Now, the Oxford Dictionary uh, interprets perversion, the noun, this way, a distortion or corruption of the original course, meaning, or state of something. The verb to, to pervert means to alter something from its original course, meaning, or state to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. Let me give you a couple examples, right? These are not going to be on the screen. The first two aren't. Um, when I was young and playing soccer, college soccer in particular, um, you know, I was fast and I was in shape and I loved a big field. Like, the soccer fields don't have to sort of all be one size. Some of them can be really big. And I loved the big fields because I was pretty fast. And, um, and I loved the purity of the game. Like, I don't want to see anything change uh, the game of soccer. Some of you might be the same way with baseball or other sports. And, uh, but every now and then, we'd be forced to play indoor soccer. And I used to think, man, indoor soccer is a perversion of the true game, right? It's just not the real thing. You know, or somebody in here who's a golfer that loves walking out, you know, onto a golf course and seeing the fairways and the greens and the beauty of it all. And when they think about putt-putt, they think, that is a perversion of the true game, right? Some of you in here are rock and roll fans. You know, you're all about the Beatles, maybe Def Leppard, maybe ACDC, I don't know. Anyway, but there's rock and roll, and then there's a true perversion of rock and roll, which we call the boy bands. Some of you are familiar with this? <laughs> Got a picture right here. This first boy band is uh, the Gert Johnnies. It's a Swedish band from the 1970s. Google it, or Wikipedia, whatever. This is a real band. They st- I actually read this, that they still are traveling around Denmark and Sweden. No kidding. When I was uh, growing up, there was a band called Menudo. I've got a picture of Menudo up next. And uh, Menudo was in, like, in the 70s, and I remember Menudo. That was another boy band. Uh, then the Backstreet Boys were in the 80s. I remember being in high school, and uh, there was a concert, the Back Bo- Backstreet Boys concert in Greenville, South Carolina, and I remember all the traffic was on the highway because everybody's going to the Backstreet Boys, you know what I mean? Again, a perversion of rock and roll. In the 1990s, it was NSYNC, right? There's a picture of NSYNC, and I think that's Justin Timberlake on the upper right, right? Again, ew, right? <laughs> and then I didn't even know who this was until I got to know some of our high school kids when, they were, um, when I was working with a youth group a few years ago, but there's a band called One Direction. Well, I don't know when they were, but seriously? <laughs> That's all I got to say. Anyway, <laughs> point is, something has gone wrong, right? A distortion or corruption of the original course, meaning, or state of something, right? That's, that's the idea, I think, that David's trying to get here, right? And let me turn your eyes from all that funny stuff to something more serious, to 2 Samuel 11. And this is the story of David and Bathsheba. And so we'll read along with this perversion. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Again, if you look here, it's, it's sort of hidden and embedded in this text. But in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, and yet it says David remained in Jerusalem, he wasn't supposed to stay back. He was supposed to go and be with his men, be with his troops. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And so his lust transformed into adultery and infidelity, right? God had been clear 
that adultery was a sin, a, punish, a sin punishable by death. That's how serious God took it. David should have protected Bathsheba, but instead he perverted his role as protector and he abused her. He used her. Verse 14, the story's not done yet. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he'll be struck down and die. So when, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah, again, this is Bathsheba's husband, at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, moreover Uriah the Hittite died. And so David should have protected Uriah. He should have provided for Uriah. He should have honored Uriah, but instead, David had him murdered, right? He perverted his role as protector and provider, not only of the people of Israel, but of Bathsheba and of Uriah. There's even more instances in this very same story of of David perverting what he was supposed to do. And the particular perversion that David is addressing here in Psalm 32, it's not about sports like putt-putt or indoor soccer or about rock and roll and boy bands. Instead, it's about God's intended order, right? It's what he uh, intended the world to look like and to be. So sin as a perversion is when we take something that God created and we abuse it so that it's taken off course and it's corrupted. So a lie is a perversion of the truth, divorce, infidelity, adultery is a perversion of the covenant of marriage. Debauchery is a perversion of food. Greed, envy, and jealousy are all each a perversion of desire, which is a good thing, right? So let me pause here and ask you this. Um, rebellion, to miss the mark, and now perversion. Do you see yourself anywhere in Psalm 32? David, I think it was very clear for him. He very clearly saw his own sin. And just to be honest, as you get older, it's a little bit easier to see the clarity, with clarity your own sin. But can you see yourself anywhere in Psalm 32? Can you see where you've rebelled against God and sought to determine and decide for yourself what is good, what is right, and what is true despite what God has said? Can you see yourself in that? Are you able to see where you've missed the mark and gone astray and wandered off the path, path, costing God, costing your family, and costing those who depend upon you? Can you see that? Have you been able to see this morning where you've perverted some wonderful, honorable thing that God has created and used those things for your own good or your own benefit at the cost of others? It's what we see priests and coaches and political leaders do over and over again. They pervert their power. Now, if you haven't been able to see yourself in Psalm 32 this morning, it's possible psychologically, it's possible spiritually that your eyes are shut tight because you can't handle the existential threat to your perception of yourself, of who you think you are. And if that's the case, then I beg you to be brave enough to open your eyes and courageously to begin to examine your heart and your life. Right? I just invite you to do that. On the other hand, if you have seen yourself in Psalm 32 today, very clearly in one of these three different ways, then I invite you today to confess your sin to God and to trust in the forgiveness that he offers you in 
Jesus. Right? As you look around the room this morning, there are these tables on the right, my right-hand side with bread and wine, and on your right-hand side with bread and grape juice. And we call this meal the Lord's Supper or communion. We refer to it in various ways, but it means the same thing, and it's essentially the gospel. The message of this bread and wine is that God sees all of your rebellion. He sees all of the ways in which you've missed the mark. He sees all of the ways in which you've perverted the good things that he gave you. And he says, if you will simply turn to me, confess those sins, and trust in my son Jesus, then we are good. And your sins are forgiven past, present, and future, right? Your standing before God is not based upon your goodness. It's not based upon the absence of your sin. Rather, it's based upon the perfection of Son of Jesus, of God's Son, Jesus. And so this meal today is an invitation for you to believe the truth that you've been forgiven, that the price has been paid, that God looks at you as perfect and whole because of your faith in his Son. If you haven't come to that point today of trusting in Jesus, then I would just invite you to sit back and, and to watch the people of God, the family of God, as we eat this meal together. I'm going to read now the words of institution, and then I'm going to pray, and I would invite you just to sit there and, and to ponder and to look at your sinfulness and your brokenness and to confess that to the Lord, and then to come and to receive his grace. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you that you um, love us enough to take on the role of a, of a doctor, a physician, an oncologist, and, uh, and to put um, the, uh, the chart in front of us and show us where we're broken and show us where we're diseased and uh, show us where we're dying. And Father, I thank you that you don't just show us the bad news of our sin and brokenness and rebellion, Father, but that you also show us the good news of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, I ask and I pray and I implore you today, Father, that you would enable us to take this bread and this wine and that we would believe deeply that we are forgiven because of your son Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, Father. And I pray that the declaration in this bread and wine, that that declaration would be louder to us than the assaults of the enemy against us, Father, or even... Um, our, the assaults that we make upon ourselves where we say there's no way that you can forgive us for all these things, yet, Father, I pray that we would indeed believe you. Pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.